Good morning. Um, this morning's scripture can be found on page 72 in your pew Bibles. It's from Exodus chapter 13, 18 through 23, and Exodus chapter 34, verses 4 through 8. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see my face and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Exodus 34, 4 through 8. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaiming his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. It's the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mike. I know we just prayed, but let's pray again. Lord, take us deeper today into knowing who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to do a quick experiment. I'd like you to close your eyes. And think about one person that you love. Okay, you can open your eyes now. Now, I can almost guarantee that at least two things came into your mind when you thought of that person. You thought of their face. You pictured their face, right? And you thought of their name. Why is that? Because a person's face is like the essence of who they are. Now, what's on your driver's license? Your left foot? It's your face. You're identifying, your most significantly identifying marker of you. The face conveys, in a way, who you are. It also conveys how you feel about someone. If you're talking to a friend or your spouse and they're scowling at you, they may be unhappy with something you said. Uh, If they're smiling, they may be interested. If they're leaning in, they may be telling you to say more. Their face communicates so much. And the name 
a name is like sort of the container that, that you put all the person's qualities into, right? You think of the name and you think, oh yeah, this person is all of these things. And the name is what represents that. <clears throat> now sooner or later, we will ask a question of God, all of us. We will say, God, who are you really? Who are you really? I want to see your face. I want to know your name. I want to know who you really are. Sometimes we get to that question through suffering. You're going through a really hard time. You're, you're lonely. You're hurting. Your body's falling apart. And you're thinking, God, are you, are you really good? Who are you really? Can I really trust you? How do you really feel about me? Sometimes we get to that question through um, how other people have treated us. Maybe your father treated you badly, or your marriage ended badly, or another person has uh, done bad things to you, and you think about, okay, God, what about you? Are you good? Who are you really? Or sometimes we get to that question because we're ashamed of ourselves. We've sinned, we've failed, we've seen how bad we are, and we think, God, I know you, I've heard that you are forgiving. I've heard that you are merciful, but are you really to me right now? Who are you? It's a way of wanting to see God's face, wanting to see the essence of who he is. Now, I bring this up because Moses was asking that same question at this point in the story. So he got there because Israel had committed this great and terrible sin, and he's seen the consequences of that, that the first stone tablets were smashed. Um, God was very angry with the people. Moses persuaded God, it seems, to forgive them. Um, but now Moses is like, everything is hanging in the balance. Like, God, are you really forgiving these people or not? Are you really going to keep going with us on this trip or not? Who are you, really? That's where we find Moses today. He's asking, God, let me see your face. I want to know who you really are. And let the record show that God answers Moses. Clearly, finally, definitively, he tells Moses, this is who I really am. No matter what else you've seen or heard or experienced, this is who I am. This is my face. So I want to come together and watch what happens. Watch how Moses receives this revelation of God because we all need this. We all need to know who God really, really is. So we're going to talk about two things, God's face and God's name we're covering actually quite a long section, chapter 33, verse 7, all the way to the end of 34. I will refer a little bit to uh, parts of this section, but I'm going to focus in on just a few verses in, chapter, in chapters 33 and 34. So God's face. Let's look first at 33, verses 12 through 23. And here we find Moses in a heated conversation with God. Look at verse 12. 
Moses says, Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. He wants to know, God, are you going with me and us or not? Because God, remember, has said, I will send my angel with you, but I myself will not go with you because I might become angry. Remember this from last week? And so Moses is like, which, which is it? Are you, are you going with us or not? Because before, God's presence had been in an angel leading the people, but now God is saying he'll be with the angel, but he won't be with them. So Moses is like, what's it really going to be? The Lord replied, verse 14, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Okay, Moses, I will go with you. But the you here is singular. He's saying, Moses, I will go with you, and my presence will give you rest. Moses says, that's not enough. I need to know if you're going with us. Will you be with your people? And... Um, God says, okay, I'll do what you ask. My presence will go with you. Um, he says, I will do the very thing you have asked because I'm pleased with you and know you by name. But still, it's not quite enough for Moses. He wants more. He wants more assurance, not just of what God will do, but of who he is. He wants to know now, God who are you, really? Can I trust you, really? And so he says in verse 18, look at this. Now show me your glory. And we, we need to pause here because hasn't Moses seen God's glory already? Of all the people in the Bible so far, Moses has seen God's glory most. Right? In the burning bush and the parting of the Red Sea and on top of Mount Sinai, he has spent 40 days in God's presence on the mountain. Even as he says these words, he is inside the tent of meeting that we read about in the beginning part of chapter 33, which apparently it says Moses would go into this tent outside the camp and speak to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So Moses had a deep interpersonal knowledge of God, and yet he's asking God now, show me your glory. What can he be meaning by that? Well, I think the, we find out what he means by how God answers the question. Look at this, verse 19. God, the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Well, hasn't Moses been talking to God face to face, it says? But it must be that Moses hasn't really seen God's face, God, the fullness of who God is. Look at how God equates his face with himself. No one may see, you cannot see my face, for no one will see me and live. To see God's face is to see God himself. Um, but Moses, God is saying, 
Moses, if you really want to see my glory, I will show you my goodness. I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. Because, Moses, my glory is not primarily my power. My glory is not primarily my holiness, my anger. It's my goodness. Isn't that interesting? God's goodness is his glory. We're kind of zeroing in on the the main point here. Um, Moses really is asking for a glimpse of God's face. He wants to see who God really is. And what, in effect, God says is, you can't see who I really am. You can't see my face, but I'll give you the second best thing. I will proclaim my name to you. I will tell you who I really am. You can't see who I really am, but I will tell you who I really am. Do you see that? And this is actually quite good for us because if Moses had had some personal, private vision of God, we, we wouldn't be benefited from that. But instead, God spoke these words to Moses 3,000 years ago that we can still see today that are still just as true now about who God really is. So let's turn now to God's name. Chapter 34, Moses makes his final trip. You know, this guy is a good hiker. He's been up Mount Sinai like three or four times. So this is his final trip up. God had told him to bring a new set of stone tablets which is already a hopeful sign, right? He's going to rewrite the Ten Commandments for him. Um, And God does just what he said he would. He proclaims his name and tells Moses exactly what he is like. Look at verse 5, 34 verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud, the glory cloud, and stood there with him and proclaimed his name the Lord. Okay, pause right there. Um, The first thing we need to see is this. God has a name, right? The word God is just a generic way of referring to the Lord. Whenever you look in your Bibles and see the word Lord in all capital letters, do you know what that is? That's actually the Hebrew letters Y-H-W-H which is a personal name of God, Yahweh. Early Bible translators wouldn't even translate it because out of reverence for the holy name of God, early Jewish translators. And so even today the tradition continues with that name being translated as the Lord. But it's actually a personal name. God has a name. God has a a self And with that self, a personality profile. Have you ever had to take a personality test for work or for school, like a Myers-Briggs or a StrengthsFinder or one of these things? Yes? You know, God could take a test like that and have a specific personality type. Now, it probably wouldn't be any of the human ones we have, but... He has a name, he has a a self, he has a personality. It's not just an abstract concept or idea or force. 
He's personal. He has a name. He has characteristics. Now listen carefully to the wonderful words that God uses to describe that personality profile in verse 6 and 7. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. First of all, Yahweh, God, is compassionate and gracious. Those are the first two things he says, the dominant personality traits, which means he's merciful toward people like you and me who are frail and sinful and weak. He's not fault-finding. He's not condemning. He's not um, uh, harsh. He's compassionate and gracious. Second, Yahweh is slow to anger. God has a long fuse. He's not quick-tempered. He doesn't have a hair trigger. He does become angry, but it takes a lot to provoke his anger. What does it say next? Best of all, he is abounding in love and faithfulness. God has an oceanic Massive love for his people, and he is faithfully committed to us in that love. He's faithful, he's loving. Th- this is who God is. These are the unchanging features of his personality. And we know this because this same description of God is not just a one off thing he says to Moses, but again and again, the biblical authors, the prophets, and the Historians of the Old Testament come back to this description of who God is. So it shows up in Numbers and Nehemiah and Second Chronicles and Ezra and Nahum and Micah and Jonah and Daniel and many, many Psalms like the one I read in prayer time. They say the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. This is who God is above all else. We need, to, we need to glue this and fix it into our minds. But of course, God has more to say. Next come three things that God does as he relates to us. First thing that it says, he says is he maintains Love to thousands, maintains that as he keeps or guards love toward thousands. Now the grammar of this sentence tells us that he's talking about thousands of generations, not thousands of people, thousands of generations of those who love him. He is committed to them in love. Now just to give you an idea, there have been about 80 generations since Jesus walked the earth. So, a th- so thousands of generations, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of generations. He might as well be saying forever. 
to thousands of generations. Second, it says God forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The word forgives in Hebrew is this picture of him carrying our sin. He picks it up for us and holds it and forgives us, takes that weight off of us. But third, it says he punishes. Now, didn't God just say he forgives? <laughs> and now he's saying, I will not hold the guilty unpunished. Or uh, uh, Let me get this straight. Um, does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. That sounds kind of harsh. How can God have said he's forgiving and then he says he punishes sins for the children for the sins of their parents? Well, apparently he is both loving and forgiving and judging of sin. Um, there's two, three things that can help us understand this. First of all, the whole description that God has given is front-loaded with mercy, compassion, grace, forgiveness. This comes last, okay? Secondly, it's probably saying that in a family structure, the sin of the, the grandfather affects even the grandchild. We are all living, walking proof of that, Right? Family sins that are passed down, which God allows to happen as a natural consequence of our sin. Third, contrast three generations of punishment to thousands of generations of love. And we see, friends, that yes, God punishes sin, but his mercy outlasts his judgment. His love is bigger than his wrath. Okay? We can only conclude from this that God's mercy and compassion and love are, are the biggest thing about him. By the way, he didn't say he is wrathful in the way he is loving, only that he does punish. He does not leave the guilty unpunished because he's just. Well, the rest of chapter 34 shows God being gracious and compassionate. He, he re-inscribes the tablets of the law. Um, he, has, he forgives the people. He renews the covenant. And um, he reminds them of, of his laws. That's what the rest of chapter 34 is. And Moses himself is so deeply uh, affected by this experience of hearing God's name and who he is, that what happens to Moses when he comes down the mountain? We didn't read it in the scripture reading, but it says he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Moses' face was literally like glowing with light because of the goodness that he had experienced of God. And he had to put a veil over his face to not distract other people, right? From this point on, Moses has no doubt who God is. Now, how does, how does what happened to Moses relate and fit into our lives today? Well, if we jump forward in the story of the Bible, it turns out there is precisely one human being in history who was an exact match to this personality type. 
It was Jesus. Jesus, God in the flesh, who showed amazing compassion to people who were hurting and sinful. He uh, was full of grace and truth. He got angry, yes, but he was slow to anger. He loved people perfectly. And this, this is the part we have to understand. Jesus showed us how God both punishes sin and forgives. How did he do that? By dying on the cross. By showing us that God would rather himself absorb the cost of our sin in punishment and judgment while forgiving sinners. That's what Jesus on the cross is all about. God being just and God being forgiving at the same time. And so when you look at the cross, you see the depths God descended to in our sin to to join us and to take our sin, to carry our sin. And you see the height of his love and forgiveness. Jesus proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. I want to share a story as I end. <clears throat> Philip Yancey uh, is a best-selling Christian author whose most uh, well-known book is called What's So Amazing About Grace. Has anyone read that? Awesome. If you haven't read it, you should. It's, it's a treasure. But last year, he published an autobiography, which I read, uh, telling the story of how he came to know this God of grace. And wow, what a, what a road, what a trip he took for that. Uh, Philip's, do, uh, Philip's father died of polio when he was a small boy, leaving um, a wife and two sons. And his mother dealt with her grief and anger toward God by becoming more religious, by going to every church service and teaching Sunday school classes and vowing that her boys would be sent to the mission field and seeing herself as a martyr for God. Unsurprisingly, Philip Yancey grew up with a view of God who was strict and harsh and demanding and punishing. He grew up in a very fundamentalist church culture in the South, in Georgia, where he'd hear, he would hear preachers at camps and on Sundays rail about the dangers of communism and the godlessness of this desegregation movement that's happening from the federal government and, and um, uh, you know, kind of threatening with the fires of hell to get people to repent. He gave his life to God over and over, thinking that he, he just had to do this to escape judgment, but he never felt peace. He never felt God's love. Interestingly, he did not rebel outwardly, but he grew up in this uh, subculture and did all the stuff, but inwardly became cynical. And so even in college, he would do the assignments and and went to a Christian college and, and talk about the Bible, but inwardly he would think, this can't be true. I know that God really isn't someone that I want to worship. And then he got a glimpse of God's face. One day, completely out of the blue, he was 
thinking about the story of the Good Samaritan, you know, where, where uh, the Jewish man was wounded by the side of the road and the Samaritan comes and administers help to him. And in that moment, he saw himself as the wounded man. And the face of Jesus on the Samaritan bending down to help him and to clean his wounds and lift him up and take him to get help. And from that point on, uh, he knew he had met God. And his life took a new trajectory of plunging, sounding the depths of God's grace and God's love. His mother, meanwhile, became more bitter and hardened and he watched that happen even as he experienced love and grace that he had never known. In the final pages of the book, he writes these words. In the churches of, of my youth, we sang about God's grace, and yet I seldom felt it. I saw God as a stern taskmaster, eager to condemn and punish. I have come to know instead a God of love and beauty who longs for our wholeness. My faith was put to the test in 2007 when the Ford Explorer I was driving slid off an icy Colorado road and tumbled over and over five times down a hillside. I staggered around in the snow in shock until a passing car called 911. An ambulance carried me into a small town hospital where the doctor tried to discern from CT scans whether one of the bone fragments in my broken neck had nicked a major artery. We have a jet standing by if needed to airlift you to Denver, he said. But truthfully, if the carotid artery has been pierced, you won't make it to Denver. You should call the people you love and tell them goodbye just in case. For seven hours, I lay strapped to a bodyboard staring at harsh fluorescent lights. And he writes, I had always expected that in the face of death, old fears would come surging back. An upbringing under a wrathful God does not easily fade away. But instead, as I lay there facing death several hundred miles from home, I experienced an unexpected serenity. I had an overwhelming sense of trust, for I now knew a God of compassion and mercy. So I want to ask you, what would you do differently if you really believed that God was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love? The, the possibilities are endless. I don't know what the Holy Spirit wants to convict you or remind you or prompt you of right now. Maybe it's to let go of a, a shame that you've been clinging on to. Maybe it's to let a secret out into the light finally. Maybe it's to have confidence as you read the Bible knowing that no matter what you may or may not understand or see about God, you know that he is gracious and compassionate. Maybe it's to take a risk to forgive someone. But God, God will lead you to whatever you need to do. 
if you really know and believe that this is who he is, that this is his face, that the face of Jesus is the face of God. Let's pray.